This week on Personally Speaking, our guest is C.W. Goodyear, one of the finest writing historians out there. So tell us more about President James Garfield. Please stay with us. Hello and welcome to Personally Speaking. I'm your host, Monsignor Gilmasanti, and author C.W. Goodyear joins me now. C.W. Goodyear is a Washington, D.C.-based historian. He graduated from Yale University in 2016 with a degree in global affairs. He's written a new book called President Garfield. The subtitle is From Radical to Unifier. It's the first popular biography in almost 40 years about a neglected but fascinating president. Far from simply being a president who was assassinated weeks after taking office, Garfield is perhaps the most accomplished American statesman of the 19th century. He was a national peacemaker whose attempts to heal rifts in the post-war Republican Party resulted in his murder and a leader whose death brought about the political calm he spent his entire life striving to achieve. C.W. Goodyear is here with us today to tell us about James Garfield, why he's one of the most notable presidents in our nation's history and how he was a well-intentioned unifier in a great and terrible divided era. Joining me now, I'm so pleased to welcome to Personally Speaking, historian and author C.W. Goodyear. We're talking with C.W. about his wonderful new book, uh, C.W. Goodyear, about his wonderful new book, President Garfield. And uh, I've been a fan of President Garfield for a long time, I guess primarily as someone who uh, looks at political figures sometimes as, wow, what might have been because of his short presidency. But you give us a book, that tells us it was a very full life, a life well-lived and impressive. Um, let me begin, though, with some more personal stuff. This uh, young man from uh, New Orleans originally ends up traveling the world and being raised in England or Australia. How did that happen? Uh, let's see. Yeah, I was born in New Orleans back in 93, and I left fairly young, which explains, by the way, why, that, why I don't have the accent. Um, I was moved to Australia uh, because my dad took a job in a mining company over there. And then that led to this, you know, this odyssey around the world. And um, it, it, it it offered a lot, you know, given the subject matter of your show, it offered a lot of interesting perspective on a lot of different um uh, uh, lived experiences and faiths, but uh, my family always very strongly identified as American, and we've never been, you know, we've never been anything else. And so, you know, looking at how I was raised and then where I ended up in terms of what I do now, you know, you can't help but draw this connective tissue. I, I just, I just feel this romantic attraction to the depth of our history and a lot of these untold stories, of which, by the way. Uh, I'm thrilled to hear you're a fan of President Garfield. There are very few to go around, I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, this this felt like a remarkable, uh, compelling uh, and untold story. That was, a, you know, th this rich American life was eclipsed in so many ways by the way it ended this very dramatic presidential assassination, the second in our nation's history. So, uh, it, you know, there are so many twists and turns of the Garfield story. It felt like there was there was a, an author to it all that with with all the different twists and turns. So I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed the book. And, and happily for President Garfield, he's represented in you by someone who has a 
a great skill at writing. I'm going to tell you what I'm talking about. I, I find most history books um, factually, you know, very interesting, but but dull as dishwater, as the expression goes. Mm. And and the good thing for my people on Sirius XM or my people on the podcast on the YouTube, President Garfield, radical to reform, reform, pardon me, unifier is uh, is written in a way which I love that is highly readable. Um, there are some people who pick up a history book and they say, uh, I'm going to go to, it's a, it's a snooze, can't do it. Yeah. But I guess what I'm wondering is this ability to almost write in a journalistic way that makes us want to read more, is this something you worked on to become? Is it a natural gift? Uh, I think it was something I worked on to become, to be honest. A lot of the narratives, the historical biographies that I really enjoy are ones that put the reader in the scene with the subject, where you, the sense the, the 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 vistas, the colors, the the, the dramatic uh, themes of the moment are tangible to the reader. That was very important to me. That's that's the way I've always admired authors who are able to conjure those images, and who are able to translate that through the page. Uh, so that was something that, that took a lot of discipline. And I'll tell you this: this is an authorial trick. Uh, I have a I'm looking at the shelf right now, but I have a shelf specifically full of books that I've found do that very effectively. And whenever mm -hmm. I was having writer's block, you know, inspiration was just an arm's reach away, which I, you know, I, I just I really appreciate that. Second, um, and I had a subject who allowed me to write that way. Uh, James Garfield was described even before his election to the presidency as being one of the most uh, influential and accomplished Americans in our nation's history. Rutherford Hayes said, and Rutherford Hayes, of course, being another of those forgotten Gilded Age presidents. Right, right. Rutherford Hayes said, the truth is no man ever started solo who accomplished so much in all of our nation's history as much as James Garfield, not even Benjamin Franklin or Abraham Lincoln. Wow. And when you look at his resume, Garfield's resume, you have Civil War general. Um, mm -hmm. You know, young, iconoclast congressman, uh, a state senator, a, a college president and a, uh, you know, progressive abolitionist preacher all at the same time when he was in his late 20s. So younger than me, uh, he <laughs> authored an original proof of the Pythagorean theorem. He was this accomplished writer, uh, practicing Supreme Court attorney while serving in Congress. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's just it, it was just an incredible arc. And this is somebody, by the way, who was raised by a single mother. Um, James Garfield never knew his father and he was born. He was the last president born in a long cabin. So, uh, all the biographies of him that came out at the end of his life, they all had the same title. They all, they all said from the log cabin to the white house. Uh, but you mentioned at the top of the hour, his life ended before it realized its full potential. But when I was writing this thing, I did want to give credit to what had already been accomplished in that incredible life, rather mm -hmm. than what could have been, I wanted to focus on what already had been. Let's let's talk a little bit about another dimension of you just mentioned it, him being a a popular preacher as well. I'm always intrigued that anybody in politics, uh, one that would become president, would be um, focused on anything religious. I mean, I'm thinking in my time, a guy like Al Sharpton would run but not be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. At uh, at what's his name the that who just died recently. Um, oh, Pat Robinson, of course. Oh, right. Um, right. I'm thinking of uh, Governor Mike Huckabee. These are all people who had careers as preachers and people listened to them to a certain extent, but for elective office, not so much. Mm -hmm. um, did Back then, would it have been a, a hindrance or a blessing to say, and, and I have a history as a preacher man? 
<laughs> well, what I would say was it probably depends on what uh, what specific stream of the Christian faith you would follow and the sectionalism of that associated. For Garfield, it was actually very useful. He was a member of the Disciples of Christ movement, uh, which in his area of Ohio, the Western Reserve today known as the Cleveland area, mm -hmm. you know, that was a popular faith. And that was honestly, electorally, that was good news that that was, so, you know, he, not only because it was the same specific church that a lot of his constituents were in as well, but also because at a very young age, what the, the disciples of Christ, the way that they're structured theologically, it puts a lot of, um, uh, initiative for careful ideological debate, uh, and then, public debate on its uh, laity. The, the disciples of Christ lacked a formalized clergy for much of their history. So Garfield at a young age, he was empowered by his movement to uh, preach openly and speak openly to large gatherings of his fellow men, his fellow Ohioans, on all matters of issues, whatever came to mind. The, uh, the doctrine of the faith was very loose. It was, it was uh, you know, there's that famous saying about the disciples of Christ. Where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we are silent. Okay. And so there was a lot of openness to whatever the individual believed to be within the realms of that definition of, of, of doctrine. So Garfield, being, joining the movement, he felt invigorated by it. Uh, and, and uh, you know, so when he starts testing his religious faith and he starts becoming more involved in the movement, you see him develop as a speaker. When he went to college, he went to Williams College in Massachusetts for his uh, for his formal degree. That's when he began wandering New England in his free time and talking to these, you know, these uh, these different flocks all over the place. So it ended up being very useful for him. But by the way, throughout the rest of his career, and this is something that struck me as very interesting, uh, he was very good at injecting into America's sense of civic religion, the sacredness, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the, 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 the political sacredness of our institutions. He was very good at introducing religious thought into that as well, like overtly religious thought. Mm -hmm. uh, he believed, for example, that the Civil War was God's will. And he believed it was because uh, it was, and this is this is in line with what he was saying immediately after the war in Congress, in the House. He was saying that it was God's way of trying to awaken our nation to the scale of its crime against people of um, uh, African heritage, which was a uh, uh, I'd almost call an um, it, it was some it was it was a level of depth of thought that was out of its time, not something I expected to see mm -hmm. in that. Saying so, um, and then through the rest of his political career, right up until his time in the White House, Garfield was not afraid of, you know, injecting his faith into um, his political discourse, or at least in a loose sense of God is watching us. Interestingly enough, when he ascended to the White House, he sent a letter out to his friends in the Disciples of Christ movement. He was the first disciple of Christ to be elected into the White House. And he basically instructed them to treat it as not a special occasion. Because he thought that that was very important as a way of normalizing his stream of Christianity was not to be too bombastic in how they mm -hmm. celebrated a member of their own flock getting into the White House. And he wasn't actually the last disciple of Christ to be elected into the White House. Uh, Ronald Reagan and Lyndon uh -oh. Johnson were also <laughs> members of that stream. Very different parts of, you know, that movement because the disciple, you know, again, they're a very diverse group. But th those three you know, you could call them an odd fellowship. That's, <laughs> sure that's, how, that's how I phrase it. Uh, you probably know that Ronald Reagan's brother was the child that was raised Catholic, and he was raised, as you say, 
uh, disciples of Christ. And I often thought, God, if we had only gotten the right brother, we could have had another Catholic in the White House. <laughs> there we go. But, but let me ask <laughs> it's you, too, though. It's just, it's just Kennedy now, right? Uh, is uh, there no, really? Joe Biden, too. Oh, Joe, oh of course. Oh, yeah, gosh, you know, uh, for better or worse, there he is. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but let me ask you, that. you know, the good thing about UCW is that you, uh, in the book, one might think from what you just said that this man was so forward-thinking and so respectful of people of all colors that he would have a, a perfectly balanced view of the African-American. But you admit in the book that uh, sometimes not so much, sometimes not uh, trusting enough in the, the African-American to rise to the occasion of being, for instance, a good voter and able to uh, discern what's the best route civically. Um, I don't know if there are statues around. You would know better than I mm -hmm. of, 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 of President Garfield. But if there are statues around, and this was a man who was not always quite as open-minded as we might hope about African-Americans, what do you make of this movement in his regard or anybody's regard who was a person of their times mm. and for whom there may be a statue or a plaque somewhere? Do we take that down or is there a way to use this public display to teach? Yeah, that's a very good question. And um, I will start by saying history is always a very fluid thing. Yeah, the yeah. way we, you know, the way we teach it varies literally generation by generation. And in some ways it's a corrective process, the errors of one era, whether in not acknowledging a part of our history or acknowledging a dubious part of our history, the next generation iterates on how those, you know, lessons are taught. Um, mm -hmm. Regarding statues, you know, me being uh, originally from Louisiana, all my family's still down there. Um, you know, a lot of those statues to Confederate leaders and Confederate wartime and political leaders, those came, those actually went up long after the conflict had ended and it was long after a lot of the participants in that conflict had ended mm -hmm. so in that way some of those were erected in order to as i mentioned before you know correct what the local people of that time thought to be the error of the prior ones to revere these romanticized figures of people's forefathers generations uh, so I'll put one cap in this and by saying that it depends across all of these different, <laughs> and I'm not going to, I'm not going to, not going to name names. Okay. Well, no, yeah. and I'm not, I'm not going to name names. That's always a mistake. And I'm, I'm not going to kick out a concrete rule about tear them all down or keep right. them all up. But, uh, the, the point of starting conversations, these statues and these relics are very good ways of doing that. And I think in some of these coming down, you're seeing those conversations come to their natural endpoint, mm -hmm. which are the people of an area deciding that this is no longer something that they that that they think can be um, that reflects the history people want to remember. You know, you or I are never going to know the pain of seeing a statue to somebody who fought to preserve a system that repressed, you know, our people and dehumanized them in so many ways. Right. Um, I will say the solution a lot of people point out to is using these statues to teach us about our history. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very, I'm not saying it's impossible. What I am saying, it's a very difficult thing to have a statue go up and to have it contextualize all the nuance of an issue the right way. Cause there's a very, the, and here's, there's a fine line between commemoration. So remembering something the right way and venerating it, which is right, to, right. to put it into its, you know, to, to hold it up as a standard for us to shoot through mm -hmm. and to, to sculpt a statue the right way to make sure that, and to introduce the right plaques that explain yeah. all those things. Very hard. I will say that there are a lot of these statues that have come down as well that I disagree. I, you know, Theodore Roosevelt 
uh, I don't know if you're aware, but there's a statue of him in front of the um, Natural History Museum. In New it's York, gone now. It's gone. It's gone. Right. It's, it's gone. gone. And I miss and, him because he was uh, a progressive president. He what was, are we doing? He was, but the symbolism, right, of the him right. on the, that 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 rubbed people the wrong way. I disagree with that movement because yeah. he he's he, been he shipped was, out to North out. Dakota, I think. Yeah, right exactly oh they are is, is that where they're moving it yeah that's probably that's what right. they did with the statue yeah oh man uh so with garfield for example garfield was and you being a reader of the book you'll see he was really for for at least a healthy chunk of his career he was well ahead of his time right and well ahead of most americans on on all of these racial issues he was so he, you know he was a radical republican he was an agitator of lincoln because he didn't think lincoln was doing enough to <laughs> you know, build America the way Garfield believed it needed to be, which is a truly just, righteous, equal nation, you know, in many ways. Uh, Garfield even founded our nation's first federal department of education as a congressman, and he viewed it as a reconstruction measure. Mm-hmm. Uh, he 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 said in the House, because it took him a, it was a very hard sell for him to sell this bill as a young congressman, but he said, are we to expand the bounds of citizenship and make no provision to increase the intelligence of the citizen?" So he was that this was him tying it directly to the 14th and 15th Amendment. Um, Now, he was also, uh, you know, I I don't know if he was. So he built his house in D.C., for example, deliberately in a neighborhood where there were fewer black pedestrians because he didn't Mm want to live near black Americans, despite having literally fought for their rights. Um, He would in his private writings, you know, he would drop the N word all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least fairly frequently enough that it implied he was comfortable using that language. Um, he uh, and then, of course, he was he was a participant in the rare participant in both the rise and then the collapse of Reconstruction. That's how long his career was. And that's how flexible ideologically he was. You know, by the end of his career, he was no longer this young iconoclast. He was somebody who believed that politics in America was the art of the possible. But he still held great hope for this future America of, you know, true equality and justice. And he and he was very sad over the failures of his nation to secure that during his lifetime. So I, I know where a lot of the statues are. I don't know where all of them because a lot of things are named after James Garfield. But uh, I would probably, I, I know, so I'd, so I'd cap this off. You kicked off. This is, this is the first time I've ever been asked this, by the way. So thank you for doing <laughs> that, uh, you know, despite the whole book tour. But uh, I, I will say, I, I'll say that every community should decide these things for themselves in the community they are. There mm-hmm. are, uh, and, but for James Garfield, you'll always count me as somebody who's going to lean very heavily into the keep it up argument because he was, um, you know, he was noble on all these issues in many ways where it was very hard to be. From Radical to Unifier, I want to talk about President Garfield, the book, and I'm delighted that uh, C.W. Goodyear is, is our guest today. I'm personally speaking. I, something that intrigues me, you write about this in terms of his defense or protection for uh, Rutherford B. Hayes. Obviously, he wanted him to be elected, and mm-hmm. Mr. Tilden has the popular vote, so he seems to win the election. And when that happens, we're told that Republicans like Garfield believed that uh, his victory, Tilden's victory, is because of a, a rebellion, Catholicism, and whiskey. Yes. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I want to know what was the state of the relationship between Republicans like Garfield and Catholics? That's a very good question. Uh, let's see. So the, the the political episode you touch on is one of was nearly the start of the Second Civil War. 
where where Hayes and Tilden were fighting over who had actually been elected president on November in November of 1876. Uh, the relationship between Republicans and Catholics was not a positive one. And that's wow. it, it, at least in this period, it wasn't. Um, and I can't really elaborate too much on the there was um, it was there was a fairly deep strand of Republicanism at the time that was skeptical towards the hierarchy of the Catholic Church mm-hmm. and how it perceived to go against the founding principles of the United States. And then there was this there's also this xenophobic element to it where a lot of the immigrants towards the United States at that time, the late 19th century, they were coming from predominantly Catholic parts of Europe. And when you add that to pers- you know traditional Protestant perceptions of the loyalties of uh, Catholics, they they saw this as being uh, some foreign network that leads directly into the Vatican, where you would have this growing <laughs> proportion of Americans who are being naturalized, but who are loyal to this Catholic hierarchy. Uh, Garfield was a believer in that. In what you just quoted, were his private writings on the eve of the election, uh, <laughs> uh, the the election failure. Interestingly enough, he was not the last Republican to use that phrase. That mm-hmm. seemed to have been a common thing said often. And a character in the book who appears fairly often, James Blaine, you might remember. Yeah, sure. After uh, Garfield's term ends, Chester Arthur is the one who serves the rest of Garfield's term after Garfield is assassinated. But in 1884, you have Grover Cleveland as the Democratic candidate versus James Blaine as the Republican nominee for the White House. And on the eve of the election, or at least it was in a few days before the election, I believe it was a member of a, the, a, a Protestant congregation that stood next to Blaine at an event, a campaign event in New York. And uh, the the and I could be remembering the details of this slightly incorrectly, but this clergyman at this political rally blames, you know, rebellion whiskey and Catholicism for the democratic vote. And then when Blaine stands up at the podium, he does not denounce what the, the, uh-huh. what the clergyman just said. And that is one of the things that has been blamed for, for how Cleveland got elected. Uh, this was that Blaine refused to denounce this xenophobia expressed right. immediately before his you know campaign speech, the xenophobia expressed against Catholics. So, you know, that was an interesting episode. There was also, um, this is tangential, but the reason, by the way, that we have Columbus Day as a holiday in America, are you aware of the background of this? Tell me, tell me, tell me. I know um, they want to take the statue down. Tell me, by all means. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, this is the great irony of this. But uh, in New Orleans, in, during the Harrison administration, the Benjamin Harris, another one of those bearded presidents we forget <laughs> yeah. about, uh, you had a mass lynching of Italian-Americans in the French Quarter. And... Uh, this was in response to a perceived mafioso hit against mm-hmm. uh, a law enforcement officer in New Orleans. And in the aftermath, Italy breaks relations with the United States, and it looks like there's going to be possibly war. So you have anti-Italian, anti-Catholic sentiment really on the rise you know, domestically in the U.S. And the way Harrison papers over this massive diplomatic breach is he decides to create Columbus Day as a federal holiday nationwide to honor the contributions of Italian Americans Mm -hmm. to, or Italians to the creation of our nation. So it's terribly ironic, I think. And and that was successful. So it's ironic and very, very interesting that a holiday that was created to appease one 
sect of Americans mm-hmm. is now being challenged for yep. the legacy of the first member of that sect towards other groups of Americans. Yes. So the melting yep. pot, you know, it doesn't yep. always melt. As you well. say, the, the history shifts from time to time. Now, there's so much to talk about, and you are so interesting, and you know so much, but i got to ask you kind of a, a personal spiritual question about Garfield. Mm. Um, you know, every day of my life, practically as a priest, I'm celebrating funerals and trying to make sense of death for people and eternal life and all that. Um, but I was I was heartbroken to read in the book about his own loss of his children, that he had yes. seven, but a couple of them died. And I just wondered, do you know how Garfield managed grief or handled the loss of the children he loved? Mm. Yes, he, he. the way he did it changed. So the first child he lost was Trot, and it was his firstborn with his wife, Lucretia. Eliza Arabella was the child's actual name, but she was named Trot after a favorite Dickens character. Oh. And she had, and, and the truth is, Garfield had barely known her, really. Mm-hmm. She had been born when he was already this up-and-coming politician in Columbus. His wife and his child were back home. Uh, the Civil War breaks out, and he just jumps into service. One, because he believes, again, religiously in the cause, but also because he's an ambitious young man. He wants to be out there making a name for himself, and he doesn't really have time for his uh, for his his wife and his child. Um, she, the child forgets what he looks like, and uh, Lucretia, his wife, later writes that of their first five years of marriage, they only spent like six weeks in each other's presence. So it was, you know, and when Trot died, she died of apparently uh, it was a mysterious ailment. But Garfield returns for her burial and then he's immediately off to Washington for another. So he throws himself into his work. And as he's in Washington as this young wartime general, he's hanging out with Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. And he's seeing Edwin Stanton's young children and he's remembered faintly of his own child. And he's writing home to his wife, Lucretia, of his grief. But he's not acknowledging it, really. He's not going back to be with his wife. And he's just throwing himself into his work. That is his cure for grief for much of his life. And then you fast forward uh, about a decade and a half. Nettie. And another child dies. And he has had a couple, several children by this point. But Nettie, one mm-hmm. of his sons, dies of whooping cough. And when Nettie dies, uh, Garfield takes the, his, the rest of his children down to see the body. And he spends, he, he grieves with his family collectively over their son's, you know, grave. But then work intervenes again, because this is during that conflicted election of 1876, and Garfield throws himself into his political work. But he he's a much more efficient mourner by that point. And I should mention to cap this all off, his entire life is a story of hard work. That is his cure for everything. I, I love, uh, in, in the book, uh, CW talks so much about... Uh, you know, stolen elections and fake news and all the rest of it, stuff we're still coping with even now. Uh, The book for our our viewers and our listeners is President Garfield. The subtitle is From Radical to Unifier. C.W. Goodyear is wonderful in that. Obviously, if you've been listening to this interview, he knows his history backwards and forwards, but he writes in a way that a good journalist would, which is to say, you want to read it. You want to turn to the next page. He makes history exciting, which is a rare and wonderful gift he has. I hope he'll be writing books for many years to come, but I thank you for this book and for all that you will do in the future and for making clear why history is so vitally important and why President James Garfield is a man worth looking at again. Thank you, CW. Thank you so much. Thanks for being with us today. If you need to reach me for any reason, you can get me at personallyspeakingpodcast at gmail.com. 
You can probably listen to this program on Sirius XM, the Catholic channel, but you can also watch us on YouTube by searching under Personally Speaking with Monsignor Jim Lasanti. And don't forget to click like and subscribe. Personally Speaking is also on Facebook at Personally Speaking with Monsignor Jim Lasanti. And we're also now on Instagram at Personally Speaking Podcast. I'm privileged to serve as host and executive producer, Personally Speaking. Our producer is Lisa Jandovitz. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be with you again next time on Personally Speaking.